Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Talkville 21 podcast. This week, we will continue and complete our ongoing discussion with Professor Gagan Sud. Our discussion last week largely concerned the legacy of Fukuyama, a theme that we will continue to some degree here. However, we will also discuss the nature of the field of global history, its ins and outs, and the challenges it poses both to previous modes of historical scholarship and ultimately to itself. We hope you find it as fascinating as we did. So in your perspective, what are the most compelling of these, these new horizons? Well, the great divergence opened up fresh possibilities like never before to undertake research into different areas of the world, many of which had not been properly treated by scholars, whose significance is not defined in relation to what happened in modern times or in relation to Europe and the West. It enabled that kind of research, so research on, say, Yemen in the 15th century or West Africa in the 19th century. It enabled these histories to be researched, their significance to be appreciated on their own terms. And then, having excavated that history, to put it in, in conversation with other histories, be it the history of colonialism later on, or the history of other parts of the world, be it Qing China in the East, or the Ancien Regime in France in the West. And that is where a lot of work is now being done. The specific examples that, that I could give in which uh, global historians have made major contributions in the last decade or two would be in showing us how the Anthropocene as a new geological era is a product of man, of industrialization, of the last three or two or four centuries. Also big history that seeks to tell a history that that crosses not just fields, but disciplines, beginning with uh, Big Bang some 13 billion years ago and going up to today, has also been a subject of concern to certain global historians. You also have a lot of research being done on the very traditions of history writing that have existed in many complex polities, states, and empires throughout history, some which overlap with the kind of history that scholars in international universities do today, some which differ considerably from that traditional history, but, but were important in the past and arguably ought to be important in the future. So these are some of the, uh, the new fronts that global history has opened up. But then alongside that are old questions that have been, or old topics or older topics that have been revitalized through the prism of global history. These include histories of capitalism and modernity, histories of human rights, of international organizations, of slavery and the slave trade, of the first industrial revolution in England, of diasporas and migration, of public health, of the movement of flora, fauna, and pathogens, the list can be extended. So there's a lot that is going on. Uh, in many ways, it's interesting because a lot of what you're saying seems to suggest that the distinction between social science and science is blurring a little bit in the field of history. Well, see, you've touched on a very important point. In a sense, global history is a misnomer. Global history, with the arguable exception of the history of globalizations, is not about histories or those aspects of the past that were literally global in scale. 
rather global history well it's transgressive it's about developing concepts and methods that enable us to access and make sense of world historically significant elements of the past that have been hitherto obscured or elusive but deserve to be recaptured in order to make sense of how we came to be where we are and how we relate to those around us. So that's why I talk about one of the major, the chief contribution as defining attributes of global history or global historical scholarship as providing novel approaches to grasping developments that enable us to transcend unwarranted ethnocentricisms, unwarranted path dependencies, unwarranted anachronisms, unwarranted essentializations. So approaches, methods, concepts are core to the global historical endeavor. And several promising approaches have been developed, which is a way of answering your question. One is the approach of reciprocal comparisons, whereby you arrive at a set of metrics in comparing, say, uh, Europe and China, which is not beholden to either Europe or China. That is one approach that is being seriously developed. Another is rooted in drawing upon archaeology, climatology, as well as history, and their respective sources, and combine them in such a way as to tell the story, particularly of, of the environment, the history of the environment, drawing on sources that are rarely invoked together, but doing so in an interdisciplinary way uh, so as to arrive at a better understanding of how uh, the Little Ice Age, say, of the 17th century influenced developments in the political realm in Northern Europe or in Eastern China or in um, the, the New World. Uh, so that's another set of approaches that, uh, that have been developed. A third set of approaches are to do with how you articulate histories that operate at the level of individual actors, as well as operating at the level of regional scale empires or religious traditions, these multi-scalar histories. Global history is particularly well attuned to developing methods and concepts that enable us to encapsulate these different scales of history and, and through them tell a coherent story. Hmm. Well, to go back to Fukuyama uh, a tiny bit after that, the idea, so, so the idea that you you challenge here is not just that history, or the, not, not just the end of history specifically, but the, the idea that the last man or that mankind in general would be central to that. You feel like that's also being challenged in a lot of ways. Well, this goes back to um, uh, the roots of Fukuyama in Hegelian thought or the Hegelian intellectual persuasion. It's, it's, it's seductive. It, within it is an evolutionary, progressive sense of the past. And uh, we moderns wish to think ourselves as better than those that have preceded us. And so it's quite understandable why instinctively we would be inclined towards Hegelian modes of thinking as exemplified by Fukuyama. At the same time, the awareness that Fukuyama and more generally Hegelian modes of thinking are very rooted and arguably innately European in nature makes it a difficult, if not impossible, 
proposition for those who are not or do not see themselves as European or Western to embrace, which is true for much of the so-called global South, which is true for much of those who saw themselves as oppressed or colonized or dominated by one or another of the European empires from the 16th century through to the middle of the 20th century. It is in light of that scholars, activists going under a variety of labels are seeking to transcend the kind of thinking as expressed by Fukuyama, come up with alternatives to those traditions of political thought, which has some very troubling, potentially very troubling uh, consequences. Would you like me to mention them to you? Absolutely. But first, I'm just going to remark on the excellent choice of words you made there. The idea of transcending Fukuyama is one that I, I find really compelling, as opposed to challenging or uh, disproving. Transcending just gives it so much more meaning. Anyway, by all means. Well, transcending in the sense of those scholars who believe that because of what occurred under the high noon of colonialism of the latter 19th century, early 20th century, no matter where one lives, no matter what one's citizenship happens to be, we are all cognitively, whether or not we like it, European. Mm. The terms we use in order to understand ourselves, terms such as rights, democracy, justice, um, these are beholden to a sense of Europeanness that one cannot deny. And so whether the scholar or the activist is in Somalia or in Colombia or in uh, Germany, they are all European. And in that sense, all they can do if they wish to do something other than what Fukuyama is, is to embrace Hegel and hope to or seek to transcend him. But then there is another tradition and arguably more powerful tradition, which says that actually one can envisage a mode of thinking founded on entirely separate conceptual foundations, some of which have yet to, to be developed, other of which were in the air being cultivated in different parts of the world, in India, in the Ottoman world, among the uh, Ashanti, prior to colonialism, but which, which were then subsequently marginalized and terminated, but which are worthy of reviving for the world that is coming into being. What is troubling about that second persuasion movement is that it opens up the possibility for incommensurabilities developing. By that I mean certain parts of the world cleaving to modes of thinking that cannot be understood a priori with modes of thinking dominant in other parts of the world. That it cuts against the idea of a shared human endeavor in which ideas can be debated back and forth on, common, on a common basis. It's a form of balkanization at the global level. On beyond that, I mean, beyond having ideas that are some are in some ways completely limited by by cultural borders, there's also the there's also to some degree the notion of truth itself that could be at stake. It's about I would say less about truth and more about values, mm -hmm. universal goals. 
ends, the ends to which a polity or a population or a sovereign regime ought to be oriented. It's about, it's about norms. Fair enough. Despite that, there are, there are liminal spaces. There are at least two categories of places that I feel have to some degree transcended these limitations. On the one hand, you have liminal spaces between what we would call the East and the West that have developed in ways that are comparable and understandable to both. And I'm thinking here uh, in particular of Japan. But on the other hand, you have models of understanding that are based in European thinking or models of, uh, of being that are based in European thinking that permeate places with absolutely no connection or rather no, no logical connection to Europeanness. And isn't that to some degree also a form of uh, cultural connection? Japan is fascinating in that regard. And not just Japan of the Japanese miracle following World War II, but Japan of the Meiji Restoration from the 1850s onwards. Japan is not, in quotation marks, a white people or a white country. It's not European like a France or a Netherlands or an England. And yet, within a few decades of it opening up to the outside world from, from the 1850s, it experienced hell-bent forms of development that culminated in a shock to the then world order, the then global order, when the Japanese defeated the Russians in the, uh, the Russia-Japanese War of 1904-1905. That had never been conceived of hitherto. The idea that a non-white power could defeat on the field of battle a European great power. In so doing, it opened up possibilities of thinking and being that had hitherto never been entertained in the then colonized world, in India, in South Africa, in other places. At the same time, it shook up the pre-existing certainties that had prevailed in Europe and the new Europes of the Americas, of the Antipodes. So Japan, as an exemplar, as a counterexample to the old, highly influential story of the rise of the West, of European expansion, dominance, and imperialism, is, has been there for more than a century, and it continues to be there today. And it is at the forefront of those who are arguing for uh, scholars in the global south who are arguing for forms of thinking that bypass Berlin, Leiden, London, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Chicago of today, and which bypass the history, the past of Europe and neo-Europe's, and in so doing articulate forms of thought particularly forms of social political force, and not just in the realm of ivory towers, but in the realm of day-to-day -day life in political structures, which suggests, opens up a very different future to the kind that we have known since World War II and Bretton Woods. I couldn't agree more. I mean, honestly, I actually find the entire, the entire East Asian sphere incredibly interesting in that regard. Japan was originally an anomaly, but since then you've seen the rise of South Korea, you've seen the rise of Singapore, you've seen the rise of China. And in many ways, there are, there are similarities in models of economic growth between these countries that were not seen in the same way anywhere in the West. And despite that, there, these models of growth are understandable to a Western audience. I mean, th th these are things that are comprehensible from a Western worldview. 
Yet despite that, it's something that emerged specifically in these regions. And, and relevant to that, or as part of that, in order to offer a positive project, a project with purposeful substance, which has meat, in order to, to achieve that, the, the scholars that, that I'm talking about, that seek to bypass the present and the past of the Euro-American world, they are actively working to, in inverted commas, decolonize the mind. They are actively seeking uh, to critically engage with the concepts that they use to access and make sense of the past in our here and now and see whether they are warranted or not. Alongside which they have rightly or wrongly fellow wayfarers in Europe, in America, North America, the Americas, who uh, have become quite prominent in the last few years under the, the label of Black Lives Matter, tear down the statues, the, uh, who claim to be anti-racist, anti-colonialists. One could have an entire conversation as to whether they're pushing and pulling those in the global South and those in the Europe and the European uh, neo-Europes are pulling and pushing in the same direction. Mm. But they do form part of a way of thinking that have certain uh, shared conceptual foundations that are both social and political, hmm. which are in the making right now. All right. Well, I would ask you to uh, elaborate further, but the truth is we, we're, we're actually getting up there when it comes to time. Uh, so, so I'm going to have to shift the conversation completely and ask one final question. So Fukuyama, as, as we established earlier, was, uh, was a political scientist, or uh, a philosopher, really, in political science. I'm sorry, I've been saying was, was, was. In reality, is. And he's still actively engaging both with policy and with, uh, with, uh, with academic thought. So uh, apologies there. But yes, no, as a political theorist, he engaged with this, well, this, this historical narrative. And he's hardly, hardly the only one. I wanted to know, in your opinion, what are the most disastrous uh, forays from academics from other fields into history? Disastrous. You know, that's a mark of success. Disaster suggests influence, suggests eliciting a response. And anything which elicits a response, it can be viewed as a mark of success in any scholarly endeavor. I would, uh, while I can understand why you use the word disastrous, it's not necessarily seen as a bad thing. In terms of comparable impact, in terms of shaking up the foundations of the, the discipline as it had come to be established in what passes for international scholarship, two come to mind in the last few generations. Uh, one is um, one of your countrymen, uh, Foucault, Michel Foucault, who has come to be seen as the, uh, the founding father of uh, post-structuralism discourse analysis. He came into the historical scholarship of the English-speaking world of Britain, of, of America, of the Commonwealth countries by way of originally from France and the Francophone world by way of America, who American scholars who embraced Foucauldian thought, but not in history departments, in comparative literature departments. They were philosophers of a vein. For those who decried Foucault and Foucauldian thought in history, they made the signal strategic error of refusing to engage with him 
in the first few years, such that Foucauldian scholars came to define the terms of that mode of thinking in academic history. And by the time historians of another persuasion came to appreciate that they were losing the argument because who controls the terms dictates the future course of the argument, by that time, it was already too late. So global history, which comes into being in the, uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s, does not seek to turn the clock back to the world before Foucault. It, seek, it embraces elements of it and seeks to do something else in light of what is worthwhile for their purposes, for the purposes of global history and historical scholarship. So Foucault is one. Another, and related to Foucault, but pointing in a different direction, is Edward Said, the famous now deceased Palestinian-American uh, scholar in a comparative literature department, a scholar of English literature at University of Columbia in the, in the U.S., and he did some of the same, but for post-colonialism, as opposed to Foucault for post-structuralism. The two overlap with one another. These two trends of scholarship overlap with one another while having their distinctive qualities. So yes, Foucault and Said would be the two most obvious examples who have transformed realms of historical scholarship uh, as aliens to academic history particularly Anglosphere academic history. Well, I find it um, excellent that you redefined the term disastrous in such a positive light. I think that was a really wonderful way of, of engaging with the question. You know, one definition, one way of defining the endeavor of history as a discipline is, is not in terms of the answers that it gives to questions that are of topical interest, but in posing new questions in ever more generative, stimulating, provocative ways. It's not about answers, but it's about questioning how we understand ourselves, where we come from and relate to those around us in a fresh manner. And so in that sense, to be disastrous is to be to be desired. Well, that's certainly an interesting way of putting it. I couldn't agree more with uh, with that. Actually, that being said, Professor, I think I think we're more or less out of time. So I'm going to thank you for your insight onto these topics. Well, thank you very much for having having uh, allowed me this opportunity to have a, a fascinating conversation, and hopefully, ideas will be put out there which others can uh, mull over and. And, 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 and learn from. I certainly hope so. Well, in any case, uh, this has been Professor Bidan Soud uh, of LSE and the Journal of Global History. And this has been Talkville 21. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E com and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.